Well, good morning, Riverside. What a joy to have those kids lead us in worship, huh? I was going to ask one of them to come up and give the message for us, but it was a little too late, last minute. Maybe next time. I think they could do it. If you would turn with me in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. And this morning, we're just the third week into our new series in the, in the First and Second Peter, and the series title is called Living Hope. And as you're turning there, have you ever heard of something called a moral hazard? Are you familiar with that term? Some of you have, maybe especially if you're in the insurance industry. It describes a situation where there's a lack of incentive to guard against risk when one is protected from the consequences. And so I'll put it in my words that a safety net can lead to more risky behavior. And for instance, someone who picks up a rental car and takes out full insurance coverage will probably be less careful with the car than if it was their own car and they didn't have any coverage, right? They're not gonna be quite as careful with it. That's a moral hazard. Or in the business world, if a company believes that they are too big to fail and the government will bail them out, they're going to take more risks in their business because they've got coverage. It's a moral hazard. Or even in the world of aviation, there are now airplanes that have what are called ballistic recovery systems. And what it is, it's a parachute that pops out. And if there's a, some kind of failure or, or problem, it can lower the plane safely to the ground. But what they found is it emboldens pilots to take extra risks flying into conditions where they shouldn't because they think, well, if anything happens, I'll just pop the chute. And so the jury's out. They do save lives, but they also create a higher level of risk. So that, too, is a moral hazard. So my question this morning to you is this. Is there a moral hazard in Christianity does the fact that God is gracious and forgiving create contempt for his standard of righteousness? Could the attitude be, I don't need to try too hard to avoid sin because if I fail, God will forgive me. After all, I love sinning, he loves forgiving, we make a great team. <laughs> that shouldn't be true of us, that would be a moral hazard. So this morning, as we get back into the book of 1 Peter, the text relates directly to this situation. And the message title this morning is A New Calling, Holiness. And we're gonna go through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. It's a short text, two parts to the outline. The mandate in verses 13 through 16 and the motivation in verses 17 through 21. So we'll read through the text first and then we'll dig into it. So here we go, I'll be reading from the NIV 1984 translation, if you'll follow along, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, let's start first by looking at the mandate in verses 13 through 16. Our text begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. The word therefore is always there for a reason. And you know the rule, whenever you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. It's always reflecting back on the preceding verses. So we need to do a little rewind and go back to verse three. And we're gonna start there, where we were a couple weeks ago, where it says in verse three, 
He has given us new birth into a living hope. Verse four, an inheritance that can never uh, perish, spoil, or fade. Then down to verse eight, inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse nine, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this faith is so great that verse 10 says that the prophets tried to figure it out. And in verse 12 it says, even the angels long to look into these things. So if we put all that together, he has given us birth into a living hope, an inheritance, inexpressible and glorious joy, and salvation. So we come to verse 13. Therefore, in light of these things, therefore, and we'll cut right to the chase. Verse 16, therefore, be holy. Believers are called to be holy. Holiness is not optional for a follower of Christ. Okay, so where do we start? It begins with our minds. Look at what verse 13 says. Prepare your minds for action. Or if you have a new King James version, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. But it's a great word picture because back in the day, the men wore long robes called tunics. And they might have been easy to make, and I don't know if they were comfortable, I never tried it, but they certainly weren't practical if they had to move quickly. And so it could easily trip them up. Think about a bride in one of those gorgeous wedding gowns. I mean, it's a thing of beauty, but it's not very practical for moving around. I've seen so many videos of brides, especially when they come up the stairs to the altar and they get tripped up in the, in the dress, and they fall down. Now, imagine going to work in one of those things, <laughs> you know, or running errands around town, or working in the kitchen wearing one of those dresses. It would be an encumbrance. You wouldn't be able to move around. Well, going back to the, to the, the men in the tunics, it was the same thing. It was very impractical when they had to move quickly. So what they would do, they would gird up their loins. They would take and pull the robe up around each leg and they'd wrap it around and tuck it into the belt around their waist. So like a girdle, they girded up their loins. And, and this became a figure of speech, which meant prepare yourself for action. Gird up your loins. And, and in our modern day vernacular, we would say, roll up your sleeves. Get ready to go. There's work to be done. So, gird up your loins. In other words, in here it says, it applies it to our mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And what it's saying is, get rid of any loose or sloppy thinking. Anything that might trip you up. The preparation has to start in the mind because our behavior flows out of our thoughts, out of our patterns of thought, out of our beliefs. So we have to start with the mind. That's why Romans 12.2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. It starts here. Actions conforming. Your mind it starts in the mind. So we need to take control of our thoughts. And it is totally within our ability to do that. We have a choice as to what we think about. Nobody can force your thoughts. They can force outward actions on you, but they can't force you to think. They can influence your thinking through images and things you hear and see, but they can't force your thoughts on you. And so we have to gain self-control over, over our thoughts, because if we don't have self-control over our thoughts, we're not gonna have self-control over our actions. Because, again, our actions flow from our thoughts, from our, our behavior flows from our beliefs. So verse 13 then continues. It says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ is revealed. Now, in this letter, Peter's already talked quite a bit about grace. Verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And for many of you, that, you've already experienced that grace, the grace of your salvation, the moment you were saved. It included the forgiveness of your sins, the renewing of your heart and your mind, the, the, the spirit within you giving you spiritual gifts, the gift of eternal life and, and more. 
the grace of our salvation. Now, some people, though, think that's kind of the end of it. When you think about grace, you think about that moment of salvation. But grace is more than just that. Take a look at verse two. Peter writes to the church, the believers who are already saved, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's talking about a present grace that you can experience ongoing in your relationship with the Lord. The grace that your prayers are heard, the grace that Christ is interceding for you, that God is providing everything you need for life and godliness, that all things work together for good. That's God's grace at the present time. But there's more. Remember those ads? They show you everything. But there's more. There is more. Look at verse 13. It speaks of another grace. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's not a past or present grace. That's a future grace. That's when we see the Lord face to face. When we're given a glorious resurrection body. When we receive our eternal inheritance when we dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. That's a future grace. Listen to what John 1.16 says. From the fullness or the overflow of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Some translations say we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. God's grace for those who love him is not one and done. It's ongoing. And we have only just begun to experience the riches of God's grace. So it says we need to learn to set our hope fully on this future grace of Christ returning. A student sets his hope on graduation. A bride sets her hope on her wedding day. A politician sets his hope on election day. Christians should set their hope on the return of Jesus Christ. If our hope is set on that, then what do we do? We think a lot about that. We prepare for it. We long for it. We endure everything to get to that day because our hope is set on that. So having our hope set on the future grace affects how we live right now in the present life. Can I tell you a little story? Maybe not too short a story, but for the past two months, Deborah and I have been looking forward to an upcoming vacation. And we were planning to get away for a couple weeks, and just the two of us, we haven't done that in quite a number of years, and so um, maybe I could just call it a mission trip (laughs) together. Um, Matt told me that he went, just this week, he told me he went on a mission trip to Jamaica, Well, that's where I'm going, so we're going to call it a mission trip, okay? It's a little different mission. I'm on a mission to spend some QT with my baby. (laughs) So we're getting all ready. We, like, booked our travel. We bought some new clothes, some new swimsuits. I bought a new dive camera. We sent in the application for our uh, renewed passports, and, man, we're just waiting. I just knew if I can just get through the next couple months, then... it's going to be glorious. I'm going to be with my honey. We're going to just have time together. I can't wait. Let me just say, I had my mind set fully on that. (laughs) I was looking forward to it. It was changing how I was thinking, what I was doing. It did help me endure a couple really challenging weeks and months. Just one problem. Deborah's passport got hung up in the process of renewal. And so... We had real issues. Um, And with COVID going on, there was no recourse. We couldn't just go downtown to the passport office in Chicago and stand in line and get an emergency same-day renewal. They're not taking any walk-ins at all. So all we could do was wait. Now, two weeks ago, the State Department said, don't worry, we still have time. We know your travel date this Sunday, tonight. Um, we'll get it to you. And I'm like, whew. But then you check your status online and day after day went by and it's still just saying in process, in process. I had gotten mine several weeks ago. In process, it's like, oh my goodness. Well, this whole thing was rather unsettling because if we had to cancel or reschedule our trip, much of our travel and accommodations, they weren't changeable, refundable. 
We were just going to be out, and, and scheduling would be a big problem. And I was really hesitant to ask people to pray about this because, in my mind, it just seems so trivial compared to some of the things you guys are going through. I know the things you guys are going through, and this just seemed so, I don't know, worldly to me. I, I struggled to ask anybody to pray about it. But nonetheless, a number of you knew what was going on, and, and you were praying. And it was such a blessing to us. So this past Thursday was probably the last day that we thought we would have for them to approve it so it could ship Friday, so we could have it Saturday, and we could leave on Sunday. Thursday was the day, and it came and it went. Nothing happened. It's like, oh, Lord, it's off. We're just going to have to deal with that. I tried my best to try and keep an eternal perspective. God, I know your will's better than mine. All things work together for good. But at the same time, I'm thinking, Lord, you say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you'll take care of all this other stuff. God, take care of this. And then, and I thought, you know, you tell a father not to exasperate his children. Lord, this borderline exasperating. Help. It it was really difficult, just the ups and downs of this whole thing. So last ditch effort, Thursday night, we go, hey, Chicago's opening up their restrictions on COVID on Friday. They say, you know, maybe we could drive down there and just get there two hours before the office opens at eight o'clock and stand and wait in line and plead for them to let her in. So she went out at nine o'clock Thursday night, got some new passport pictures. We had all this stuff together. We were looking into parking. She was going to leave at 4.30 in the morning and drive downtown. Well, at 10.04, we get an email that her passport has been approved. And we're like, hallelujah, we celebrated And then we're, let's go to bed. We were exhausted. And so we went to sleep, and I woke up at 3 in the morning, and I looked online again, and at about midnight, it is actually processed for shipment. And there was a tracking number. I pulled it up. It shipped. One problem. They sent it regular mail. They didn't send it overnight express. It shipped Friday. Regular mail was scheduled to be in here sometime this coming week. It was back off again. So... 7 a.m., Friday morning, we're on the phone to the State Department, and if you call like five seconds before 7 a.m., you can kind of get in the front of the queue. We, it said it was like 15-minute hold. It turned into an hour. We got through, and the man said, oh, I see. We, we shipped it the wrong way. I'm going to have to put you through to a supervisor, but it's going to be a lengthy hold. Four more hours. From 7 a.m. to 12, and I thought, oh my gosh, if anything happens, our vacation is hanging on a thread here. If the power goes out, if we hit the off button instead of the volume or the speaker button, (laughs) we're done. So finally, the supervisor comes on, and it's a terrible connection. She says, I'm sorry, sir, but I can only hear about every other syllable. And she was about to hang up on us, and I said, no, please don't hang up. We've been holding for five hours. Well, she hung in there for us, and she finally figured out what I was saying. She goes, well, it shipped express. I said, no, your system says it did. Look at the tracking number. It didn't. She saw the problem. I finally convinced her to reissue the passport on Friday and ship it express. She said, "This we normally can't do this. I'm putting it through. I said, so you'll ship it today express? She said, that's the goal. Okay. We're back on again. That was 1 p.m. on uh, Friday. 4 p.m., we got a call from the State Department, and it went right to voicemail for some reason. It said, please give us a call regarding your trip. We call. This time, we're calling the New Hampshire office. We held for an hour and a half. An hour and a half. We were on hold when Nathan left for work in the morning. We were on hold when he got home that evening. (laughs) The man finally comes on an hour and a half later, and he says, I'm sorry, sir, but the supervisor gave you bad information. We can't reissue your passport. You're going to have to wait for the original one to come in. And it might get there Monday. And uh, we're traveling Sunday. Our trip is non-refundable, non-cancelable. It was just really frustrating to say the least. I mean, we had our bags packed, we had our, we were getting our negative COVID tests, and so here we were. Well, we tried to learn lessons from this whole thing. Um, it, was, it was challenging, to say the least, but here's some of what I learned. First of all, I felt convicted that if I'm praying this much about a vacation, there's a lot of things I should be praying more about. Amen. I mean, it showed a little bit of where my heart was, I think. Secondly, 
I probably had my hopes set a little too much on this vacation. I have my hopes set fully on a grace that is to to be revealed. His future grace. Do I, am I looking forward to his future grace as much as I was looking forward to this vacation? I mean, I really wanted this to happen. I didn't want to have to go without Deborah. But <laughs> Sorry. The third thing I learned, this was a high price to pay for a sermon illustration. <laughs> I love you guys, but come on, <laughs> Lord. The fourth thing I learned, I'm sure glad that the, path, that the State Department isn't handling my passport to heaven. <laughs> the book of life, it wouldn't be in there in time, I'd be sunk. But all of this going on, I mean, it just felt like a nightmare. Brad wrote me, he said, hey, can I just play Job's friend and ask you, which one of you sinned, you or Deborah? <laughs> To bring this state of affairs upon yourself, I snapped right back. The woman did it. (laughs) I channeled my inner Adam. Well, the sad thing is her passport had made it all the way from Tucson to the Chicago Distribution Center uh, overnight, Friday night. But it it has to make the truck to the Carroll Stream Distribution Center, and then from there it makes a truck to the St. Charles Post Office, and then it goes out to delivery. So we thought, well, let's just call, this is yesterday afternoon, let's call the St. Charles Post Office and just ask what time the truck's gonna be in so we can be sure um, of, of, that that passport will be there Monday. And what we did, we booked Deborah. we are gonna, I'm gonna go by myself, we booked her a flight for Tuesday. <laughs> My flight leaves tonight, Stay tonight in Miami, get to Jamaica Monday morning. She'll come in same day Tuesday. We just miss a day. So that was our plan. Well, we called the post office to find out what time the truck would be there. And the lady said, yeah, it, it, it is in the Chicago Distribution Center. It's got to go to Carroll Stream then here. But we'll have it early Monday morning, and it will be out for delivery. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. At least we'll be able, she'll be able to travel on Tuesday. So then she said, can I get your address? Yeah. And then she said, can I put you on hold for a minute? It might be maybe five minutes. And we said, that's nothing. (laughs) We're good at holding. We were so sick of that hold music at the State Department, though. That was playing in my house all week. And meanwhile, I'm trying to prepare for the the sermon today. And it it was just tough. So the lady said, if I can just put you on hold. She came right back and she said, your passport was sitting right here next to me. And we said, what? She said, it's right here next to me. You can come down and get it at the St. Charles Post Office. We said, how is that possible? It's still in the system as being in Chicago. She had no explanation for it. It was sitting on the counter beside the lady we called. We didn't believe it. We were like, okay, let's not get too excited again. (laughs) Deborah runs over there. It's her passport. And it was sitting there. The lady had no explanation for how it got there, but there it was the day after it left Tucson. If you look in the system now, it still didn't go through Carol Stream Distribution Center. It didn't, it didn't do any of that, but it was there on her counter. All I can say is God is amazing. Amazing. And we're getting to fly together tonight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hallelujah. God. When I learned that, I mean, I had laughter and tears. I was just like, oh, God, woe is me. <laughs> you, know, you are so good. It was, it was just unbelievable. I still have a hard time believing that it actually happened that way. But there was a fifth thing that I learned. God hears us when we pray. I didn't want this to fall through because you guys were praying. Oh, Lord, these are such faithful people, and they're praying or pouring out their heart to you. And look what God did. He hears us when we pray, and his grace is ongoing. Grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you, Lord. Well, we're supposed to have our hope set fully on the grace that is to come. I'm not there yet. I just just showed you. I'm not there yet. But like many of you, I'm learning and I'm growing. I'm learning what this looks like. Too many times I have my my hope set on other things. There's nothing wrong with vacation, but in comparison to the glory that awaits us, vacation is so trivial. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 
So now it's moving from the attitudes uh, in our mind to actions, and, and we see this metaphor of obedient children. Obedience is a learned behavior. No child starts out naturally obedient. In fact, if we tell them not to touch something, then when they see it, they're like drawn to it. <laughs> and if you, if you stand right there and say, don't touch, they'll even like look you in the eye and go, just enough, just in defiance and touch it. You have to, no, don't touch. And sometimes you just got to turn their little body around and start their little legs going this way. There's a natural disobedience there. One of the things Deborah and I love is teaching a parenting class because it, it made such great impact on us as young parents. And one of the principles in the class is a principle of first-time obedience. I've talked to you about it before. We're to obey. Our obedience is to be right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And when a child learns that discipline, it's so beautiful. It just cuts all the tension out of the parent-child relationship. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just tell them the principle of first-time obedience and you know they do it. We say all the time, parenting is a process. Well, here, Peter makes a comparison to obedient children. But the analogy goes further than that. Yes, we, in some ways, reflect obedient children, but we also reflect disobedient children, amen? <laughs> yeah, so when we see something that's wrong, aren't we <laughs> kind of drawn to it just like a kid? Now, when you were saved, probably some of the sinful things you used to do, probably some of those behaviors stopped right away but other ones still had a hold on you and it took longer and some of them still might have you. So, you know, maybe we look at it and, and we go, wait a minute, that, that's wrong. See, that's the attitude of our mind. We know, it says, we know now. We used to live in ignorance, but now we know that's wrong. So we start to turn away, but maybe we still kind of look back at it even as we're turning away like eh, you know or maybe we just let our hand drag across it touch it a little bit as we're turning away we need to get to the point where like first time we turn away and we start walking away we walk away from our old sinful desires and we walk toward godliness better yet we need to get to the point where we don't even get close to that there's always going to be temptation but, but obedience is a is a learned behavior and it's a process so that's what he says here. He says that we are to be like obedient children. Will we do that perfectly right away? No, we won't. In his second letter, though, Peter talks about, we'll come to this several weeks down the line. Ooh, I'm really behind on the slides, aren't I? Sorry, guys. I got all into the vacation mode. <laughs> Focus. <laughs> In his second letter, Peter talks about the tendency of a dog to return to its vomit. There's a word picture for you. Or for a sow that's been washed to go back to wallowing in the mud. They not only go back to it, they revel in it. They waller in it. They ingest it. See, as a believer, we're to leave behind those evil desires, that former way of life. We might still be tripped up in that sin, but we're not to live for it. We're not to waller in it. We're not to ingest it. We're to turn away and walk away, walk toward godliness. That's what God calls us to do. But again, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. Moving away from our sinful nature, moving toward Christ's likeness. So verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now to be holy means to be set apart, to be separate from something. And God is set apart from every other being and every other thing. Ooh, I'm still behind. Um, there's none like him. He's perfect in all that he does. He is perfectly holy in everything. And this is a defining characteristic of God. We saw, and we read in scripture, how the angels day and night say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They don't say Grace, grace, grace is the Lord God Almighty, or love, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. Yes, he's full of grace and love and mercy, but a defining characteristic is his holiness. It's his holiness that allows him to be perfectly 
loving and graceful and merciful toward us. God is absolutely holy. That's the easy part. The hard part is he calls us to be holy. He says, just as I'm holy, so you should be holy. Now, is that saying you need to be perfect? It can't be because there's no way for us to be perfect. God knows that. He's not calling us to be perfect. He's calling us to be set apart, to be different from the world. Believers are called to be set apart. And here, in fact, he's quoting an Old Testament passage when he says, for it is written, it's written in Leviticus chapter 11, be holy because I am holy. Let me read it to you. It reads, I am the Lord your God. This is God talking to the Israelites. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. See, God chose the nation of Israel to display his glory. He called them out from all other nations, from all other peoples. He called them out of slavery in Egypt and out of the pagan nations surrounding him. And he said, you're to be different. I'm giving you a different standard of conduct. I don't want you to look like the Lord when they, or like the world. When they look at you, I want them to see something different. I want them to see those are God's people. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be holy. We often use the term holy matrimony, right? For a wedding, holy matrimony. Holy because a man and a woman are set apart for each other. They're forsaking all others and keeping themselves holy unto each other as long as they both shall live. Holy matrimony. They don't look at others the same way. They don't hold others the same way. They don't cohabitate with other people the same way. I hope not. They're set apart for each other. It's holy matrimony. Or maybe another example. Maybe some of you are frequent flyers. I used to be, not no more. (laughs) But if you rack up enough miles, you can become a premier or an elite status. And as such, you're set apart from all the other travelers like me back in steerage. (laughs) See, when you check in, you don't have to wait in line. You get your own little elite check-in area. You go right up to a special counter. And rather than hanging out at the gate, you have this special lounge that you can go to. And you're eligible for upgrades, a business class and first class. You're not flying an economy like me. And when it comes time to board, you, you, they have those two little lanes with a strap between them. You get your own little lane. And, and this part's silly to me because it's like six feet long. And you go and the, you come to the same ticket person and show them your boarding pass. But the elites get to go on the left side of the strap. And we all have to go on the right side of the strap. Whatever, if it makes you feel better about yourself, okay. But they're set apart. And they receive special privileges as an elite traveler. God wants his kids to be set apart. He doesn't want them to look like the rest of the world. Not hanging out in the same bars and clubs and strip clubs. Not viewing the same things on the internet. Not using the same foul language. God wants his children to look and act different. Being set apart for God should not be seen as a a burden or a duty. It should be like a privilege, an honor. You're God's child. You belong to him. You should be proud of that. So how are we going to go about this being set apart, being holy? Well, if you only studied this one passage of scripture, you might think, I've got to separate myself from that evil world out there. I've got to have nothing to do with them. And, and that might be your thought on how you can fulfill this goal of separation. I'll just pursue sanctification through isolation. Well, back around 250 AD, there was a, a man from Egypt named Anthony of Egypt. And some people called him St. Anthony the Great. Big name. He was turned off by the evil in the world. And so he decided to go out into the desert and live in a cave. And then later he lived in a tomb. He thought that this would keep him from the evil of the world around him and allow him to fulfill God's purpose for his life. He could dedicate his life to worship and prayer. Well, this was the beginning of the monastic movement. Manos means alone, and that's where we get the word monastery and where we get the word monk. 
And so that was Anthony's idea. And this is a monastery that uh, is out in the eastern desert of Egypt in the middle of nowhere. Now, if you don't look at the entirety of the Bible, you might think that all sounds right. Let's separate from the world. Let's, let's live alone. But sanctification through isolation was never God's purpose for his church. Jesus said in John 17, 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. To be in, but not of the world. To be insulated, but not isolated from the world. Jesus said, go into all the world. Into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. That's his purpose. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with separating ourselves from the world for a period of time of preparation. John the Baptist did that. Jesus did that. The Apostle Paul did that. To separate ourselves for a time of preparation, but then we have to go back into the world. Philippians 2.15 tells us that we should become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. In a crooked generation in which you shine. A star only shines when it's surrounded by darkness. You can't see it during the day. So we're to be in the world. Now, my son Nathan works at a bicycle shop in St. Charles. I won't name it for you. But they know of his work ethic. They love his work ethic and, uh, and his attitude toward work. But one of the other men working there said to one of the owners, he said, I have a healthy disdain for his wholesomeness. <laughs> and my son heard that and he just kind of laughed. Let me translate for you. He's not like me. He's different. I kind of admire that, but he makes me feel a little comfortable about who I am. Well, it should be that. <laughs> he should feel a little comfortable, uncomfortable about who he is. And if this man would ever just come to the end of himself, he'd find it. He can have the same thing Nathan has. Abundant life, purpose, meaning, grace upon grace from the Lord. He shouldn't have a healthy disdain for his wholesomeness. He should have a desire for the same thing for himself. So two points here. First, Scripture interprets Scripture. We need to look at the rest of scripture to get the bigger picture of what this holiness, this separation looks like. And then secondly, we're not to pursue sanctification through isolation. That's not God's purpose for his church. It's for us to go into the world, different but in the world. So that's God's mandate for his church, holiness. Let's look next at the motivation in verses 17 through 21. It says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So the first thing we must keep in mind, our thoughts, is that every person will stand in judgment before the Lord. Remember, it's got to start there. You have to think this. You have to know it. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to prepare our minds for action. By embracing this truth. So if there's any loose or sloppy thinking out there. Anything like, well, it doesn't really matter how I live. Because God will forgive me anyway. I'm saved by grace. Well, if that's your thinking, that's tripping you up. And you need to gird that up. And remember this. Every person will stand in judgment before the Lord. For believers, it won't be a judgment to determine salvation. That was already determined by Christ's work on the cross and by our faith in him. Believers are forgiven. It's not about salvation for a believer. Look at what verse 17 says. He says, he judges each man's work impartially. Each person, each believer will have to give an account to God for what he has or hasn't done. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in a body, whether good or bad. So although believers can't lose their salvation, they can lose their rewards. Believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's sometimes referred to as the Bema seat of Christ. That's a believer. An unbelieving world will stand before the great white throne judgment. They will be judged, and they will not receive eternal life. They'll be condemned for a lack of belief. But we still are judged for our work. So, it says then, 
to live as strangers here in reverent fear. Another word for stranger is alien or exile or sojourner or a temporary resident. Someone who's just passing through. See, we must not live like this world is our final destination. It's not. It's just our layover. Well, God willing, Deborah and I will have an 11-hour layover in Miami tonight. I'm not going to buy a house to stay in while we're there. (laughs) I'm going to rent a hotel, but I'm not going to buy a house. Why? Because we're not staying there. It's just a layover. It's just temporary. We're just passing through. I'm going to spend 80 bucks, not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so verse 17 is saying that as a sojourner in this life, we're not to get too comfortable or put down too deep a roots here. Because we're a sojourner. We shouldn't be living like this life is all there is. Some of you may um, remember Dieter Happel. He was a dear brother in this fellowship. He passed away of cancer about eight years ago. Dieter used to have this beautiful way that he'd sign his emails or his texts or, or his, um, his cards. He would put Dieter Happel, a temporary resident of planet dirt. Isn't that beautiful? A temporary resident of planet dirt. In other words, a sojourner, a stranger. This is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm not going to get too attached to the things here. So a question for you. How much of your time and treasure are you investing in this life versus the next? Are you living as a sojourner or a permanent resident? We should, be, we should be storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth. If you were to get a statement every month about how much treasure you have stored up in heaven, like maybe you get a 401k statement, or sometimes you look at your social security, there's not much in that. <laughs> but, but you get your statement on your 401k, and it says how much you've been storing up. It's like, hey, that's accumulating. What if God gave you a statement? Hey, here's how much you stored up this month. What would that look like? Where are you making your investments? Practically speaking, what's your ministry? What areas are you serving? Whose lives are you impacting for the kingdom of heaven? See, a a Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. We're to be investing in the future life. We're to be doing kingdom work here on earth. So we should be living as strangers. And it says we should do so in reverent fear. That means having a deep respect for the fact that God will judge our work. Anyone who takes a casual approach toward holiness is not living in reverent fear of the coming judgment. They've created a moral hazard. So the reality of a future judgment is the first motivation. And then for the second one, look at the price that was paid. Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from, your, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. How does that verse 18 begin? For you know, you know. Underline that word, know. See, this goes back to the attitude of our mind. Knowing, understanding, comprehending. It goes beyond just thinking. It goes into the realm of a firm conviction of being fully convinced that this is true for you know this silver and gold they're they're precious they're valuable they're beautiful but this says they're also perishable as great as they might we might think they are they're going to perish And as valuable as they are, they're nothing compared to the price that was paid for your redemption. Jesus didn't come with the payment. He came as the payment. He was the payment for your salvation and mine. And it says that it was his blood, his life. His was the only sinless blood since before Adam fell. Think about that. The only sinless one. That's why it says he was a lamb without blemish or defect. And because of this, he was the only blood that could meet the righteous requirements of the law. He's the only blood that could take away the sin of the world. Not cover it up, but take it away. This blood was priceless. 
That's what it's saying. And when we consider the price that was paid to free us from our, our slavery to sin, that should motivate us to live a holy life. Look at how it describes our former way of, of life, B.C., before Christ, before we came to Christ. In verse 18, it says, it was empty. Some people look back at their B.C. life almost nostalgically. <laughs> Those were the good old days, the party days. And like, they, like, they, they're, like they're still enjoying reflecting on that. That's not the way the Bible describes it. Here it says it was empty. And Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But then it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Our salvation was a free gift. You can't earn it. It was a free gift, but it cost God a lot. So let me go back to my original question. Is there a moral hazard in Christianity? Have we become so comfortable with the Lord's grace and forgiveness that we show contempt for his call to holiness? See, when we sin and the hammer doesn't drop, do we think, I got away with that? And then we might think, I bet I could get away with it again. It must not be that big a deal. God will forgive me. I'll just revel in that. That would be wrong. That would be a moral hazard. Listen to what Romans 6 says in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? God calls us to holiness we were slaves of sin, living for empty pleasures and dead-end desires. And he came down and he purchased our freedom with this precious, priceless blood. We shouldn't be living like we were redeemed with something cheap. We weren't. It was the blood of Christ. And that should motivate us to want to follow him, to turn from our sin and turn to him. How do you determine the value of anything? It's based on what somebody in a free market society is based on what somebody is willing to pay, right? I showed you last week that invisible statue that sold at auction for $18,300. What an idiot that paid that. But that's what it was worth. There is nothing inherently valuable in you. It's not because we were worth so much that Christ paid such a high price. It was because of who he is, his love, his mercy, his grace. He poured out his priceless blood for us. And because of that, believers have great value. Look at verse 20. It says, he, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He was revealed to the apostles. They saw, they heard, they touched him like we read about last time. He was made known to us through the writing. But one day, he'll be revealed to us. We will see him face to face. And we'll dwell in his presence forever. That's that future glory. And finally, verse 21, it says, Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. God raised Jesus from the dead, guys. There is Overwhelming evidence, we've talked about that. Overwhelming evidence. It proves that God alone is the author of life. He alone has the keys to life and death. Who can do that? Bring someone back from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that there's a future resurrection for every one of us. Some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation. I believe in him. I'm trusting in him. My faith and hope are in him. And as we saw last week, we're saved by faith, not by works. What could you possibly do to earn heaven? I mean, really. It's a gift by faith. And it's by faith because faith is the one human act that requires no work on our part. And so as a result, we can't boast. There's no room for arrogance. We're saved solely by faith in the work Christ did, in the precious blood of Christ. We'll 
I need to wrap this up. Holiness is not optional for a believer. Some might say, eh, holiness is not an option. No, holiness is not optional for a believer. God calls us to it. He commands us. It's a mandate. Be holy as I am holy, he says. We can't treat that lightly. He wants us to be set apart from the world we live in. Now, if we don't take this seriously, then we have allowed our faith to become a moral hazard, a safety net that we use to exploit God and live an ungodly life. That's not what God wants. This should never be true of us. We should be passionately pursuing holiness. And it starts by changing the way we think, preparing our minds for action. Our motivation should be the reality that there is a coming judgment. Believers will be judged for their works. And being holy as a believer, again, it doesn't mean perfection, it means progress. It means turning away from our sin nature and turning and walking steadily toward the Lord. Jesus took care of the perfection part. You can't be perfect. I can't be perfect. I'm not. Jesus took care of the perfection part for me. That frees me up. I'm set free from slavery to sin. But I'm not set free to willfully sin. I'm set free to pursue holiness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've given us such a priceless treasure in your son Jesus Christ and in the eternal life that he brings. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But you've given it freely to us if we just place our faith and our trust in you. Thank you, God. And God, I pray that this would motivate us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to, to live as strangers in reverent fear. Not, not clinging to this world, not investing all of our time and treasures in it, but in the kingdom that is to come. And God, help us to see the world the way you see it, not embracing the sin, but embracing the sinner and pointing them to the love and the life that we found in Jesus Christ. And so God, it's in his precious and powerful name that we pray, amen. Let's worship. Will you stand with us?